excited yet. <laughs> Sorry about that. Please do this for me. Would you all come? There's been studies that show if you have a small crowd in a big room, the learning experience is not good. If you have a small crowd in a small room, it's great. It will help you a lot and me a lot if we're all right here. Thank you for, thank you for moving because this will just and keep it the center section, not way over on the sides. So uh, I, it's just going to be a lot easier for me. Thank you. Is, was he going to say something? He left. Oh, okay. I guess he wasn't going to say something. Okay. All right. <clears throat> uh, three years ago, I read a book and a story. And there was a line in that story that just absolutely stunned me. Um, I'm going to tell you the line in a minute, probably more than a minute. But let me prelude it with these verses in Matthew 7. I don't care either way, guys, whether you want to give me the clicker or you have it. I don't have the clicker, and I'm, we're not gonna, we don't have that many slides, but, so it's just up to you. You've heard this. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Thank you. You know, uh, judgmental people tend to trigger judgment in others. It was, if I judge you, you're more likely to judge me back. And we don't feel safe with judgmental people. Often, we just don't, because we know they're critical and judgmental. And uh, look, we notice things about people. We see things. As much as possible, you all, we're trying to gather right up, right up close. We're gonna, it's going to work a lot better for all of us. We notice things. But the question is, what will be our attitude when we notice? You see, it's one thing to notice things, but if we notice things with attitude, and this country has got attitude from here through, I mean, it is, it is tragic. Attitude, attitude, all over the place. This goes on. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And someone facetiously observed there are an awful lot of specks of sawdust in a plank of wood. All right? So why do you look at the one speck in your brother's eye when you've got a plank with, loaded with specks of sawdust in your own eye? Um, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank, plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye and we'll be busy a long time probably taking the planks out of our own eye before we, before we judge them. So, we just tend to, we just tend to judge. It makes us feel powerful to put other people down, to be critical of them. And again, I hope you're hearing me. We can't help but notice faults. We ha can't help but notice things that aren't the most pleasant. The question is, do we notice them with attitude or not? Now, 
I'm going to put Brenda on the spot. I, I asked her permission if I could do this, so I'm going to do it with her permission. Brenda and I have known each other for a long time. She was a huge help to me in Chapel Church and Loma Linda. Would you agree that Brenda is fairly outspoken? Would you agree with that? <laughs> I saw that hand. Uh, <laughs> she speaks her mind. She gets things done. She makes things happen. She's very assertive. Now, I, I should have done this this morning because more of the church could have heard it. But, um, <laughs> hey, listen, some of you really like that about Brenda, and some of you wish she'd tone it a little bit, right? There's enough of us around. She's the same person to all of you. Some of you appreciate her assertiveness, and some people wish she'd cool it a little bit. But she's the same person, which means this. You see Brenda the way you see her because of you. You see Brenda the way you see her. And the line I read in this story was, we see people the way we see them because of us. This is really huge. Now, I keep... I'm going to keep saying this. That doesn't mean we won't notice things we like and we dislike. The whole thing, I think this whole passage, I do not judge, or you two will be judged, etc. I don't think Jesus was saying, you better be blind and not even be able to see the false in others. You, you can't hear well? They're saying, could you turn me up a bit more? You're not hearing as well. Are you okay? My wife and I are both working on deafness. and uh, <laughs> We really are. I ate last last night. I ate. Uh, I ate, we ate dinner with my dear sister who's here, and I could not believe how often I had to ask her to say it again because I really am struggling with hard of hearing. <clears throat> so Jesus, what he said, do not judge your utility. I think he was talking attitude, 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 and I love what we said this morning. Will will it be self? Our self-life, our flawed, judgmental, critical, insecure self-life by which we see and notice the flaws in others, or will it be Jesus' life in us? Let me put this line up. There we go. I see people the way I see them because of me. That line may not be a big deal to you, but I'll tell you, it, is, it has made me stop short like nothing has every time I, in spirit, and judgmental and critical of others. It just, it just stops me. And two other things help me a lot that I've said to myself for a lot of years, and that is, look, this is nothing compared to your own flaws. If I have to forgive you, I mean, listen, one of the, one of the reasons I have to forgive you is sometimes is because I just don't like you. I mean, you know, I think forgiveness is not just something I haul out once in a while. There are people we like and people we don't like. And for me... Not to be critical and judgmental, I need to con constantly have a spirit of love, acceptance, and forgiveness towards you. Otherwise, I'm just going to be in my mind and behind your back with my wife hammering you all the time. You see? So I, I see people the way I see them because of me, and here's what we want to do. We want to see people the way I, I choose to see people the way I see them because of Jesus. In other words, I want Jesus' life in me to see people 
not self-life in me. Which means we will have to be really devoted to dying to self. Because if self is alive, I will not be able to stop being judgmental. Because self likes the power and the fun. Listen, but I'm challenging you to give up some fun. It's really fun to be critical, isn't it? it isn't, isn't it fun to be critical and judgmental? I mean, our nation is thriving on it now. It's our recreation. It's terrible, you see? One of the reasons I am against sitcoms is because people are always the butt in sitcoms. It's terrible, and it trains us. It's training our children and our youth to have attitude, attitude, attitude. And it's tragic. Let me, I think I've got some, I want, I want to just whip through. I want to hear some, here. I want, I want to whip through a number of verses. Um, hey, I, boy, I'll tell you, a verse that really challenges me, I'll just quote it. Romans 12, uh, towards the end of Romans 12, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is mine to avenge. On the, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. It doesn't say if, if, to just suck it up and shut up with your enemies. It says to actually return good. You know, in doing this, you heap coals on their head. And the last verse in that chapter says, do not be overcome by evil. Instead, suck it up and stay quiet. It doesn't say that. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. I mean, this is hugely radical. It's, so we not only don't want to be critical and judgmental, just, and we're talking generically or people that we really have a difficult time with, we actually, or nor, nor do we want to settle for just keeping quiet and stuffing it. We want to respond to their evil with good. We want to bless them. We want to affirm them. We want to support with them which is a wonderful and a huge challenge. And I can't pull it off, and you can't pull it off. Only Christ can pull this off. This won't happen on the fly. Even if you're trying, if you are not in a journey of constantly surrendering, I mean, if I, if I have attitude towards someone and being critical, I don't think that's like Jesus. Would you agree with that? which means I'm sinning. Now, I may not, that person may not know it, so I just go to God and said, here I am again, Lord. There's just attitude flying all around my head. I'm listening to myself instead of talking your truth to my mind that we talked about this morning. And I just confess this and ask you to come in and give me a spirit of love and compassion and forgiveness. Do you want to ask any questions about this at this stage? I can't you to get, get you to ask any questions today. This is the third or fourth time I've asked. And, well, I guess I should say something more radical. Uh, <laughs> hey, 1 Peter, this one I don't know by memory. Uh, hey, and I hope, listen, even though the Lord has given me the gift I got through school memorizing, that most of the school is memorizing, and I'm a quick memory, so that's fine. I am, I, I am not going to dogmatically say that people should memorize Scripture. 
I will dogmatically say that we ought to really be in Scripture and know it and maybe have it easily available on cards. You find your own way, as we talked about this morning, you find your own way to have Scripture so available that you can constantly speak Scripture to your mind when self wants to say other things. So you figure it out. But, hey, uh, let me go First Peter 3, 8 and 9. Um, this is, this is a challenging one. Am I going to find it? Here we go. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with insult, or evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. There it is again. Do not, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with God. But with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. And it goes on. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. It's just a loaded, loaded stuff. Philippians 2. Let me just... Uh, what, what, uh, I'm not remembering these right away. Philippians 2, 14 to 16. I wrote this one down wrong because it's not the text, which is all right. Uh, I, I want to go to Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians for a minute. Um, Ephesians 4, 29 to 32, which is really a loaded text. This is the text that says, uh, uh, don't let the sun go down in your anger. This is the only text in Scripture which seems to open the door for an anger that may be okay. Scripture is laced with text as to the destructiveness of anger and how it's not good and we should avoid it, etc. Here in Ephesians in 4.25, each of you has put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we're all members of one body, when self is alive, often we're not very truthful. We exaggerate. We need to speak, and I'll say a little more about this. We need to speak with compassion. In your anger, do not sin, which is very, very intriguing. And I, I am still wrestling with what that means. And I'll tell you where I've been for a while, and maybe I need to grow more into this. I think I'm usually going to be in trouble if I'm angry for me. But if I'm angry for you, I think that's different. If bad stuff is happening to you and I'm angry about that and angry for you, that's one thing. If stuff's happening to me and I get angry about it, and especially if I stay angry, don't let the sun go down in your anger. I don't think that means if you get angry one second before sundown, you better fix it in the next half second. It just means don't hang on to it a long time. And, uh, and then in verse 29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Verse 30 is loaded. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling. I think that text seems to clearly say when I hold on to anger, if I stay bitter, rage, anger, brawling, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit out of my life, which is one of the worst things we could do. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And I, I really believe 
there is much, there may be a lot of anger and bitterness and, and judgmentalism and criticism going on that's not related to what somebody did to you. It's just, I mean, do you watch the news sometimes and just get mad? No? Yeah? Some say no, some say yes. Yeah. And again, I don't know why you're mad, uh, you know, but examine why you're mad and be cautious about it in terms of what it's doing to you. You want to say more about this? Surely I can stir up a discussion about politics. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but are, are you hearing me? This is really radical stuff, very, very radical stuff, uh, that, we, that we would so surrender self, constantly be surrendering self, uh, and all of that. Remember the text we said this morning, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. We're dead in the water if our sinful nature is controlling us, which means we need to keep surrendering and surrendering in all circumstances, and that's what opens the door. That's dying to self, opens the door to be filled with Christ's love and his resurrection power so that what comes out of us, what comes out of us in attitude and action and behavior will be Jesus, and I will be less and less likely to see people the way I see them because of me, and I will be more and more likely to see people the way I see them because of Jesus. Lord, I choose to see so-and-so. Let me just get the last one. Jesus, I choose to see you fill in the blank the way you see him or her. No comments. No quarreling with me. Yeah. Yes. There's what? There's being in your life. Can you just not okay. Yeah, so if I see people, some person the way Jesus is, they're constantly in my life. They may be a difficult person. You may have to draw boundaries. Hey, I guess I won't say that. That's too personal. It makes other people vulnerable. But I'll just say this. I know someone very closely that is going through a divorce now. Her husband was so emotionally and verbally, not any other way, but emotionally and verbally so abusive, she had to draw a boundary, okay? And, and so, and she's in the, currently in the process of divorce and some healing. We may have to draw serious boundaries. Ideally, I mean, I, I have told people in my pastoral ministry who just feel they cannot go on, I have said to them, I think you should get in a place with Jesus and stay in a place with Jesus and not make a decision until you are sure it's Jesus in you making the decision and not just your hurt, angry self. And so, yes, you, you're saying you may have forgiven them, but they're with you constantly. And then if you don't have a choice and they're with you constantly, then you're constantly challenged to die to self, to not hold resentment, not fire back, not, not whatever. If, if this is a person that is just unhealthy for you and destructive and you can limit your relationship with them, I think that's appropriate. You know, I'm not saying 
be a doormat. Some people think Jesus was a doormat. <clears throat> this is a little glib to say, but you don't victimize me. I choose, I, I decide whether I'm a victim or not. I don't want you to think of that. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah. They take it and take it. Yeah. 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 About the person. What do you say about a person's tolerance to someone who's just not treating them well, and partly is temperament or whatever? But I would say the person that tends to just take it, they need to get with Jesus and let Jesus make them stronger so that they can sit with that person and say, this is hard for me to handle. I'm going to get to you. This is hard for me to handle, and I don't think I can keep relating this way. The person who just fires back at any mystery, they need to get with Jesus and surrender self more and decide, okay, uh, what you, but to just take it without talking. I'm not suggesting we don't address problems, we don't deal with them. All I'm saying is, I want Jesus in me to do the talking and the deciding, not self. That's what I'm saying, and that's not easy to figure out sometimes. Yes? Uh, you mentioned that if we are not just doormats. Right. How do we relay that to Christ and say that he was being crucified? Right. We, uh, we, Jesus, we, you know, I've said we shouldn't be doormats. She's asked, how do we relate to that when Jesus was crucified? Um, when you look at Jesus being crucified, and he uttered not a word and all of that, I think he made a clear-cut decision from a, a perfect life to simply decide not to react to that. He and his father had decided a mission, and to fulfill that mission, he begged in the Garden of Gethsemane, he begged that this wouldn't happen, but his priority was his father's will. And because God did not take him out of that place, he wasn't being a doormat. He was assertively choosing his father's will. Is that helpful or not? Little, a little. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Anybody else you want to get in on this one? I mean, it's, it, I know it's, I know it's really tricky. It's it's very tricky stuff. Yeah. A concrete game plan on how to die to self. Yeah, uh, and... You got the forgiveness thing this morning. Yeah, right. And that's when we very specifically commit certain sins and so on. I think a huge part of it is to uh, constantly letting the Holy Spirit convict us of sin. We learn in John that that's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, to convince us convict us of when we're not meeting God's will. I mean, I may be just doing that with materialism. I mean, I can, it, it, I don't sin just by hurting you. There's lots of ways in which we can sin. And in terms of a game plan, and I'm, um, I have a friend, Will Alexander, who died a few years ago. He and I wrestle all the time because he didn't like game plans. He was a mystic and just kind of feel it. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I'm more, and I, as you know by now, I tend to be a little more structured, and I like some very specific helps and steps. So it depends a lot on personality. 
But uh, however you do it, I just believe you, you cannot shortchange unhurried time with Jesus, both listening to him and having conversation and speaking to him. And I think in that context, he will show you what you need to die to. And then you will just keep doing that. Sometimes you'll just do it fully. And at other times, because it keeps popping back, you realize, you, you know, I, may, I, I must be just saying this. Apparently, I don't mean it. You know, I know I'm not being very helpful when I say this. Uh, but I just feel like the two sides of the journey are dying to self. And the more fully I'm committed to doing that, and I think hanging around the cross a lot is really huge. Uh, there's a line by Charles Spurgeon, which will be a startling line to you, uh, but I'll say it and talk about it for a second. We've got time. Charles Spurgeon said, I do not know when I am more perfectly happy than when I'm weeping for sin at the foot of the cross. Now, that's a... That, that, you're right. Somebody, I agree with you. <laughs> that's a puzzling statement. I don't know when I'm more perfectly happy than I'm weeping for sin at the foot of the cross. I think the cross is the place we need to see our sin and be shown our sin, first of all, because any other place, I'll either rationalize it and won't see it seriously, or I'll beat myself up, and it's, this is terrible, terrible, terrible. At the cross is where I'm convicted of sin, and at the same time, in my conviction and repentance, I experience his forgiveness. And so it's such a wonderful place to be, to both be weeping for my sin in repentance and contrition, and all mixed in with that, receiving his love and power in new life. And so I think hanging around the cross a lot, um, and letting him show me, and, and just saying, look, I, I want to surrender this, Lord, and watch him work and let him know if you need to keep more deeply. But on the other side of it, um, the more I'm filling myself with Christ, the less room there is for self. So I think part of dying to self is filling my life with his ways and thoughts and words. And there'll just be Pretty soon, the self will just be stuck in a closet somewhere. I wish it would work that easily. But, there, you know, so anyway, that's about, I, I know it's not very tidy. Oh, yeah, right. You know, uh, yeah, that is helpful. I forgot about this. That we've, probably the one tool I've ever shared in a sermon got more response than any other tool I've ever shared, and that is, simply uh, using this line, Jesus, I choose to trust you when you say. Uh, I, I, words, any circuit, Jesus, I choose to trust you. And I think using the word Jesus, the name is quite powerful, I think, from what scripture says. Choose, you know, is different than want. Uh, my my son-in-law went to a seminar and he was taught there, never say and never let your staff say, well, I'll try. It means it won't happen. Okay. I choose, Jesus, I choose to trust you when you say, and I'm speaking then his words to myself. You see? I'm bringing, when you say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with evil. When you see, when you, you know, I love the, the, the list of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithful, gentleness, self-control. 
The next line is an interesting line. The next line says, against such things there is no law. Isn't that a strange statement? And I think the reason it says it is, you can, you can legislate behavior, but you can't legislate attitude. And the fruits of the Spirit are all attitude. Yeah. But, hey, we, I assigned the church. This is when we were in Oregon, our last pastoral assignment before we retired. And I just said, hey, uh, next week, this week, whenever you get in sticky wickets, especially if you're with people at work or home or whatever, that, that you just are difficult people in your life, just stop and say, Jesus, I choose to trust you when you say love is patient, love is kind. Just find your own scriptures that work. It's not easily angered, whatever, you know. Just, and I said, would you come back next week and report to me? And I didn't expect to get any reports. I learned that sermons don't change behavior, so I'm preaching all day today. But uh, listen, the next Sabbath, I, I asked them, and we got several reports. The most dramatic was a guy who was in a computer business and a number of employees, and there was someone at work that he truly detested. He he, I think he may have used the word he hated this person. I mean, just the thought of him or when he saw him. And if they were in the meeting and he started to speak up, he'd just sit inside. I mean, he just, and he, and he decided throughout the week, I, he said, I can't tell you how many times I had to say it. <laughs> but he, he just, throughout the week with this one single person, he just said, Jesus, I choose to trust you when you say, love your enemies, etc." And he, I don't know what text he used. And he said, by the end of the week, my thoughts and attitudes were changing toward that person. After years, by simply saying, Jesus, I choose to trust you when you say. It's a marvelous line for uh, putting on Christ and, and surrendering self. Okay? More on this. We're doing okay. So, ah, Hey, I, I, let me, yeah. Have you got orderly in? Okay, okay, good. Have you got orderly in the way Christ's life comes into us after we get rid of ours? Have I gotten orderly or a process? Have you seen order to it? Uh, order, in words, have I experienced it happening? And do you teach it? Oh, do I teach it? And do it? Yes, yeah, I do. I have a, I have a great thing going now in my life. Um, I have a lung problem that, that uh, keeps me imprisoned an hour a day. <laughs> I have a machine I have to go on 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes in the evening. Uh, <clears throat> it's the same machine they use for kids with cystic fibrosis to pound the lung. And Anyway... So it's, hey, I'm, I'm trapped 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes in the evening. And so my 30 minutes in the morning, I'm doing some praying. I'm doing quite a bit of reviewing scripture. And uh, my morning time is just really getting my head in his word a lot, re reviewing or, or new ones or whatever. My evening time uh, leans more towards intercessory prayer. I think one of the ways to die to self which we haven't talked about at all, and that is to just be more and more devoted to the needs of others and the good of others and all of that. I'm going to say something about that later this afternoon. But, but, but just being, yeah, go ahead. So I have a question for your scripture time. 
have you noticed that is there anything about the fruit of the spirit that would correspond to the Ten Commandments? That would correspond to the Ten Commandments? I would think so um, in terms of uh, we all are worshiping beings. We all worship something. We all have a devotional life. If you want to know what you're devoted to, just inventory the thoughts and the subjects that go through your mind when your mind is wandering and you don't have to focus it on something. That's my devotion. That's my devotional life. And I think right off the bat, you shall have no other gods before you and making other idols. I mean, we all worship, we're created that way. We cannot not worship something or someone. And so I think the beginning of the commandments just immediately challenges uh, where we're devoted. And uh, when I'm devoted to self and whatever, I can't have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. I think, I mean, I'd, I'd go to sap. I mean, you start talking about the ones don't kill, don't steal. I mean, that has a whole lot to do with our relationships to others. I think Sabbath is a, a weekly day to keep all of this in perspective. So I don't have a hard time seeing much of this in the Ten Commandments, although I don't preach it overtly from there. Yeah, so... Last, last word again? I don't preach this stuff directly from the Ten Commandments usually, but I think it's easy to see it laced throughout the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments are basically a summary of the two great commandments, love to God and love to human beings. So it's... Uh, that's, excuse me, that's boiling it down. But I would go so far as to say each of the fruit of the Spirit is a word-word synopsis of a commandment. Interesting. In the same order. Is that so? I'll have to look at that. That fascinates me. Each of the fruits of the Spirit is, is one of the commandments in the same order of the commandments. I'm going to go look at that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Hey, pass the mic back here if you would. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, you have three uh, sentences on the board. Right. First one says, I see people. Second one says, I choose to see people. Third one says, Jesus, I choose to see a certain person. They're all people. This is but the, yeah. when you quoted Peter earlier from one, one Peter, and you said we need to see them through being humble and being gentle. Oh, yes. But if you read to Peter... And he talks about false prophets. He goes after them left and right. He has a rant against false prophets. Right. He's not seeing people from the point of view right. of being humble or being generous. He just sees the yes. enemy out there. So I guess my question is, when we interact with non-Christians. Is it the same as interacting with our Christian family? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, I think Christian, uh, other people that aren't Christians should look us, at us and say they are weird. 
they aren't behaving the way they should. They're not angry. They're not judgmental. What's the matter with these people? Then how do you explain Peter when Peter's, he rants? Uh, I think we'll get, maybe I'll, I'll transition here. Uh, first of all, all we have is Peter's words. We don't have his attitudes. All we have are his words. And I'd like to say, look at Jesus in Matthew 23. Woe are you, woe are you for this, woe are you for this, woe are you for that. I mean, that's, doesn't that sound, that doesn't sound like this stuff at all, does it? Okay, let me help you out. Let me help us out this way. Um, Let me just see what I should do here, because I'm, I'm just going to, this is a good transition to another subject. Um, now, this is okay. Have any of you read Bruce Marishano's book, In the Footsteps of Jesus, his story about what it was like when he played the role of Jesus? Uh, it's, 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 I think the Matthew, it's, it was made quite a few years ago in the 90s, uh, uh, the Matthew videos the, uh, the script is scripture word from word, and Bruce Marishano had to play Jesus in these videos, okay? Um, and I'm going to read to you his experience of saying to the crowd, woe are you for this, woe are you for this, because he just wrestled and wrestled with, how did Jesus say this? And how did he say it without getting into all sorts of judgmentalism and rah, rah, rah stuff, you see? He, he, let me just read this out of his book. Uh, uh, what presented the difficulty, the words appear so harsh and condemning. Yet the hallmark of the Savior giving them was compassion, love, and mercy. How could I fuse the two together for purposes of reenacting the event with any degree of accuracy? Here you mentioned Peter is just lambasting. He's idol worship and all of that. Here Jesus is absolutely unloading on them very critically, but it's Jesus doing it. My acting coach, Al Ruscio, used to quote the saying, the journey from the head to the heart is a journey of a thousand miles. Somehow I knew it was that journey that had to be taken before the cameras rolled. So that was the specific focus of my prayer a prayer that for the first time in, my, time in my life went like this. Lord, show me what it all looks like through your eyes. Because we want to relate to people as Jesus does, see people as Jesus does, and speak the truth, even when it's a difficult truth, the way Jesus does. He goes on, everyone was swarming around me. They're on the set now, you follow me, and they're about to film this part of the story of Jesus. Everyone was swarming around me, paying no attention. I was pacing and praying and looking over the tide of faces. Lord, show me what it looks like through your eyes. And this is where it gets difficult because I don't have words to describe what happened in the next moment. It was so fast, just a fraction of a second, and I'm convinced the reason it was so quick was that the Lord was protecting me. What I saw in that moment was not with my eyes. It was with something in my heart. And the only way I can put it into words is to say that it was a sea of people living lives he didn't plan. People living lives away from his love, away from his care, outside of his goodness, his embrace, his plans, purposes, and hopes for them. And then, he, and then just get the feel, the emotion, get the attitude of this. It was so awful a thing 
I don't have words to describe, describe to you how incredibly awful it was. I remember when it happened. It was as if the wind got knocked out of me. I couldn't breathe, and my heart just broke. It broke at a level I never knew existed, and I just started shaking and weeping. I would weep uncontrollably that day for more than an hour, completely unable to compose my emotions. This is Holy Spirit. And in the pit of all of that, as I stood sobbing and shaking, the Lord stamped a scripture on my heart, and I mean stamped. It rose in me like nothing ever has, for lack of a better way to put it. It was as if it actually came to life in me. It's a scripture I'd read a thousand times. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. For the first time in my life, I understood what the word compassion means when it comes to Jesus Christ. I understood that it isn't just feeling sorry for people. It's a heartbreak so intense, so deep, it's like your gut is getting ripped open. It's a heartbreak that screams in utter agony for the needless, pointless pain of people, people who need only to turn to him. Have you heard the line, Lord, break my heart with the things that break your heart? What I felt that day was so incredibly tragic, and there can be no doubt what I tasted was just a drop of the water in the oceans of the universe compared to what it truly feels like for him. The compassion for people, what it all looks like through his eyes. The man playing the role of Matthew saw it happen. He said by chance he was looking over at me when suddenly he saw my face change dramatically and then I broke. He told me somehow instinctively he sensed what was going on and stunned to disbelief, he whispered these very scary words to himself. He's living it. Matthew's first reaction was to go to me but the director was also watching from the scaffolding, and he knew something special was going on, and he wanted to capture it on film. Technically, things weren't quite right and ready, but the moment was already happening, so he took a chance and yelled, action. Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. I screamed through trembling lips with sobbing eyes and a gash in my heart. It was killing me. These people were all going to their death. They were all living in death, and they had no idea. All they had to do was take... Reaching his hand, it wasn't, you heathens are damned. It was, open your eyes, save yourselves, come to me. It was desperate scream of a parent watching his own child step off a curb in front of a moving car. If you can imagine that pain, that is what it was. That's the heartbreak. That's the compassion. I finished the speech and fell into crying into Matthew's arms. There were hundreds out there, but you could hear a pin drop. The director cut the seed came down from the camera scaffolding. He was crying himself, the cameraman. That wasn't acting, brother, he said. That was ministry. Still sobbing, I looked for a place to hide, but there was none. I made my way to a mud wall and sat with my face down, surrounded by villages. The director came. There were tears in his eyes as well, and he reached to me. Are you okay? I will never forget looking up into his face and saying, it kills him, Reg. It just kills him. We can start speaking to people's sins when our hearts are broken that much by their sins. You see? And then I broke all over again. It's also the story of an experience that's carried it with great cost as well as great value. You see, following that second day and what went with it, the Lord has never looked the same to me. I haven't looked the same to me, and nothing and nobody in the entire world have looked the same to me. One side of that is excitement beyond excitement, but the other side is heartache like I never knew before. Excitement for that kind of passion, heartache for that kind of pain. Um, 
that now there are times I can barely watch CNN without losing my emotions. I can hardly speak in front of an audience without doing the same. Sometimes I'm sitting at a red light and someone will walk by on the sidewalk and I'll start to lose it. In short, it's made the day in, day out, ordinary living of ordinary life in an ordinary world a bit difficult for me. Wouldn't you love to have the Spirit in you so fully and deeply that when you see sin, when people sin against you, when you sin against them, that the Holy Spirit just breaks you? I do not know when I am more perfectly happy than I'm weeping for sin at the foot of the cross. And can you imagine if we refused to address negative things of any kind, situations, people, circumstances, except when we're in the place of being so dead to self that only Jesus will be heard and seen and known through us. The text we read this morning in John 12, the end of it, for I did not speak of my own accord, Jesus said, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Don't you want to be there? Let's have a quick prayer and we'll break briefly. <clears throat> Lord, fill us with your spirit. Give us eyes and hearts to see and feel towards others the ways you see and feel towards each of us and the whole world. Thank you for this possibility, Lord. Amen. Hey, we'll come back and should we come back at five after ten minutes? Yeah, oh, we'll come back. Do you want to sing a, we'll sing, do you want to sing a song now or later? We'll sing a song when we come back and then, and then we'll be done, we will be done before 4.30. We, I wouldn't be surprised we're done near four. Okay. <clears throat>
How many of you have seen the movie Ordinary People? It's an absolutely marvelous movie. It's the story of a family, actually mom and dad and their younger son, trying to recover from the death of the older son, Buck. He and his brother, the younger son, had been out in a storm in a boat, and Buck had drowned, and the younger boy lived. And <clears throat> this was, uh, uh, had all sorts of challenges. One of the main ones, themes in the movie, is uh, the mother dearly loved Buck and kind of resented the younger brother. If she was honest with herself, she probably would have said, I wish Buck had lived and you had died, although that's not said in the movie. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's just a profound, thoughtful movie with all sorts of relational overtones. Uh, Ordinary People it was Robert Redford's first movie, and he got an Oscar as Best Director that year for that movie. Very near the end of the movie, uh, Calvin, the father, gets out of bed uh, way before daylight, before normal getting up time, and goes down and sits at the dining room table, just kind of uh, weeping about what's going on. And a little bit later, his wife Beth, the mother, woke up and saw he wasn't there, so she got up, put on a robe, and walked downstairs and found him at the dining room table. And I'm just going to read the script word for word uh, from then on. Beth said to him, Calvin, why are you crying? He said, you are beautiful and you are unpredictable, but you are so cautious. You're determined, Beth, but you know something? You are not strong. And I don't know if you are really giving. Tell me something. Do you love me? Do you really love me? I feel the way I've always felt about you, which is interesting now in reply. He goes on, it would have been all right if there hadn't been any mess, but you can't handle mess. You need everything neat and easy. I don't know. Maybe you can't love anybody. It was so much Buck. When Buck died, it was as if you buried all your love with him, and I don't understand that. I just don't know. Maybe it wasn't even Buck. Maybe it was just you. Maybe, finally, it was the best of you that you buried. But whatever it was, I don't know who you are, and I don't know what we've been playing at. And so I was crying, and then with choking voice, he says, I was be crying because I don't know if I love you anymore, and I don't know what I'm going to do without that. Beth looks at him impassively, uh, turns around, and walks upstairs to her bedroom. For a brief second, she starts to break. Then she gets hold of herself, pulls out a suitcase, and starts packing to leave. Because she could not handle mess. Now, one of the challenges we have is living with mess and relating to it. 
And I think that our human nature, <laughs> should I, I, Brenda wish you'd been at the 9.30 session when I preached five sermons in 20 minutes. Uh, she wanted me to say two or three things for those of you that weren't here. How many of you weren't here at 9.30? Oh, yeah, quite a lot of you. Uh, uh, let me just tell you, uh, 12 years ago, Diane and I ran into a book that changed our way of living the Christian life. Up, and then, up until then, we were trying harder instead of getting deader. I think the journey of the Christian life and, the, and self would rather stay alive than die. And so it tries to behave well because it doesn't want to die. Uh, so instead of trying harder, uh, we need to die more fully. And when we're dead to self, this is a quote from Dallas Willard, and I love this quote. Dallas Willard says, when you're dead to self, you're not surprised when things don't go your way. You're not offended when things don't go your way. And you're not controlled by the things that don't go your way. How you doing? <laughs> you're not surprised. You're not, when you're, hey, you can't hurt a corpse. When you're dead, you're dead. Okay? So instead of trying harder to achieve, we need to devote ourselves to surrendering more fully to receive him. Okay, that's the fast synopsis. I don't know what you want me to say, Brenda, but there we are. Anyway, <laughs> anyway uh, the challenge of handling suffering is our self-life doesn't want the insecurity, the helplessness of not being able to fix things. Men especially are guilty at this, women to some degree, but we want to fix stuff. And when we can't fix stuff, it's very uncomfortable. Don't you know? I mean, I'm intrigued watching, uh, you know, the two categories of people that had the hardest time attending church are the newly divorced people and the unemployed people, and to some degree, the single people. I'll never forget, years ago, our daughter Raylene was single, going to an Adventist church in Boston, and felt it was the worst hour of the week. She felt so lonely. And one zap that she called us almost in tears. Maybe she was, I don't remember. And I said to her, Raylene, father, pastor, of Seventh-day Adventist Church, I said to her, quit going. Oh, wait. Anyway, so now you won't. <laughs> hey, listen, we, we don't like mess. The newly divorced person, we're not sure what to say to. We say nothing. The unemployed person, do we ask them if they found a job yet? They don't want to keep hearing that. I mean, hey, listen, we, we want to avoid mess. And, and, and for some reason, we think, and, there, and this may seem like a huge shift in the theme of the day, it's not. Because I think one of the primary ways we're missing dying to self is not getting ourselves wrapped up in the mess of others. Just being there. And if we get a few things, I think we'd, I think we'd be less threatened. Um, we would be less threatened. Uh, go to 2 Corinthians, not 1. 2 Corinthians 1. 
I want to point out some things and, and take the burden off, take the pressure off, trying to fix things or know what to say and all that. Look, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, 3. I'm sorry if you're looking this up. The Father of compassion, which is a compassion with feeling, that's the Latin, and the God of all comfort, comfrote, which is Latin, with strength. So the God of all feeling and the God of all strength, who comforts, strengthens us in all our troubles, so that we can comforte, strengthen others, those in trouble, with the comfort we ourselves have received. Listen, if, you, if we would realize when we're in suffering situations, we're not responsible this is God's problem. The buck stops with him. We just happen to be a conduit. We've received from God. We've received strength and comfort. And we're there to just be a pipe, a conduit, where his strength and suffering and, and, feel, and love for us just flows out to others. We're not responsible for fixing, blah, 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 blah. We're just be there. And just say, look, this is not my problem. This is God's problem. But we run from suffering because we can't fix it. And we must get in our minds that we don't have to fix it. We shouldn't try to fix it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to be helpful as God leads us. But the buck stops with God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. It's a marvelous text. When I was teaching whole person care classes at Loma Linda, because doctors, physicians, they either are cold and have no bedside manner or they get too involved and try to carry the burden themselves. This is the text for all health givers. It's the text for all Christians, actually. But hey, just receive, be a conduit, let him flow through it, okay? Point number one, the pressure's off. We can be in suffering situations and it's remarkable and notable to me that when Jesus was here on this earth, if you wanted to find him, where would you find him? where people were suffering. That's where Jesus loved to be. Which means, if we are going to encounter Jesus most intimately, we want to go where he is. And that's where suffering is. You see? Inasmuch as you did it unto one of the least of these, uh, I want to thank you for doing it because I love that person. He didn't say that. He says, you did it to me. That's, that's me you're ministering to. And I think we, frankly, miss a level, both a kind, quantity, and quality of intimacy and beauty with Jesus by running from suffering and avoiding suffering. I think we have no idea what might happen in just in our intimacy with Jesus if we went and found him in fellow sufferers because we're all sufferers really and we just we've had enough for ourselves so we don't take care of others like we should um, the, the um, let me just hey go to Isaiah uh, uh, 58 for a minute boy I'll tell you this is, Isaiah 58 is a remarkable text, a remarkable, basically, Isaiah 58, I'm going to do a Clarence Schultz summary of this. God says to these people, look, you want to be closer to me, you want me to answer your prayers, you feel like your prayers go no higher than the ceiling. You know, let, me, let me tell you why they don't. You're too wrapped up in yourselves. 
And then he says, and he says, is that the kind of fast I want? Do I just want you to go to, to church and give offering and, and then go home and do your own thing? No, is that the fast I've chosen? No. Here's the kind of fast that I've chosen, is I've chosen only one day for a man to humble himself, Sabbath, <laughs> um, uh, and so on. Is not the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, and to set the oppressed free? I'm in, um, uh, I, I'm in verse 6, and break every yoke. Verse 7, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Now, here's the kicker. Then, he said, if you will get yourself immersed up to your elbows in the suffering of others and just know that's where I am, you're meeting me, and I'm working through you. Then your light will break forth like dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you'll call and the Lord will answer. He has said at the beginning of the chapter, you want to be near to me. You wish you got answers to prayer. It all feels flat. You feel like you're going through the motions. I'll tell you why is. You're just going to worship one day a week and going through the motions, and you're not involved in the suffering of others. You start getting involved in the suffering of others, and you watch what happens to your spiritual life. Watch happens to your intimacy with me. Watch me start answering prayers as you cry out to me for the needs of others instead of just your own needs. It's a wonderful, this whole thing's wonderful. Call and the Lord will answer. You'll cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with pointing the finger and malicious talk, hey, we talked about that. If you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always and satisfy your needs and on and on. This is, this is really beautiful, isn't it? And, and, and it will be rewarding if we don't feel like the buck stops with us. We're in the midst of suffering. Nothing may get fixed. See, one of the main reasons, apart from this discomfort of it, I don't like to feel helpless and hopeless. I don't. And I've avoided suffering because of that. When you get involved in people who are hurting, there's not much you can fix. There really isn't. All you can do is be there, which is really quite remarkable in itself. And wonderful things happen. And it becomes, uh, one of the things I'm struck with is, I wonder if we really got this and started living it, and when we went to the suffering, hey, if with our self-life we, we try to help the suffering, it's going to be exhausting. If I try to help with my self-life, it's going to be exhausting, and I'm going to get resentful that these people don't fix themselves and get themselves right. You know, it's very interesting. Studies have been made of secular, government-sponsored help organizations versus church-sponsored uh, help organizations. And the government situations, the feedback and the surveys that people feel more demeaned they feel the resentment and the anger of the government workers, whereas church people are much more compassionate and they maintain the dignity of the sufferer much better than the unbeliever. It's just, so, so 
we want to go, if we go just trying to do it out of our own self, it won't work. It'll be self-life. We'll get resistant. We'll get exhausted. Uh, one of the ways you know whether Christ is through you or self is, how exhausting is it and how resistant are you to doing it? When I'm resistant to helping, when there's a need, I ask myself, is this because of my gift and Jesus isn't calling me? Or is this just plain old selfish self-life? You follow me? So it, it's, it's a really big deal. And the more we get wrapped up um, in, in, um, in the sufferings of others, the, the more fun we'll be having. I, I find myself once in a way, and I'm preaching on myself because I don't live this well at all, but I wonder if ideally our recreational life, our most, the thing we'd want to go to most with our discretionary time, resources, and money would be the needs of others. I just wondered that. I go on cruises regularly, and I confess I just can't picture Jesus on a cruise. I confess my sin. You probably say, why are you doing it? That's a good question. I'll leave it there. I don't have any more to say about that. <laughs> hey, listen. This is a fascinating story. I, I'm going to read you a little anecdote. Um, there's a lady, a Yale professor by the name of Nora Ellen Gross, who wrote a book, Everyone Here Spoke Sign Language. Um, in the 1980s, Gross was researching hereditary deafness on Martha's Vineyard in the 17th century, the original European settlers were all from a region in Kent, England, called the Weald, where there was a high incidence of hereditary deafness. Are you following me? So 17th century, in this one little area, a high incident of deafness. Because of their geographical isolation and intermarriage, the percentage of deaf people increased across the whole island. By the 19th century, one out of every 25 people in the town of Chilmark was deaf, and in another small settlement, almost a quarter of the people could not hear. It's remarkable, isn't it? Uh, today, because of the mobility of the population and marriage with off-islanders, hereditary deafness has vanished. The last deaf person born on the vineyard died in 1952. In most societies, physically handicapped people are forced to adapt to the life patterns of the non-handicapped. But that's not what happened on the vineyard. One day, Gross was interviewing an older island resident, and she asked him what the hearing people thought of the deaf people. You didn't think anything about them. They were just like everyone else, he replied. Gross responded that it must have been necessary for everyone to write things down on paper in order to communicate with them. The man responded in surprise, no, you see, everyone here spoke the language, sign language. The interviewer asked if he meant the deaf people's family. No, he answered, everybody in town. I used to speak it. My mother did, everybody. Another interviewee said, those people weren't handicapped. They were just deaf. <laughs> now, this is a remarkable uh, oneness. You know, I think about what Jesus did, becoming flesh with us. You see? They were just deaf. Other people remembered the deaf were like anybody else. I wouldn't be overly kind because they, they'd be sensitive to that. I just treat them the way I, I, I just treat them the way I, oh, I just treat them the way I treated anybody. 
Indeed, what had happened was that an entire community has disadvantaged itself en masse for the sake of a minority. A lot of implications here. We disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others. Instead of making the non-hearing minority learn to read lips, the whole hearing majority learned signing. All the hearing became bilingual, so deaf people were able to enter into full social participation. The result was that the people in the social fabric, who in other places would have fallen through it, when they had socials or anything up in Chilmark, why, everybody would go, and the deaf enjoyed it just as much as anybody did. They used to have fun. We all did. They were part of the crowd. They were accepted. They were fishermen and farmers and everything else. Sometimes if, people were more, sometimes if there were more deaf people than hearing people at the event, everyone would speak sign language, just to be polite, you know. Deafness as a handicap largely disappeared. Perhaps the most interesting aspect of Gross's research was the revelation of how hearing people had their own communication abilities enhanced. They found many uses for signing besides communication with the deaf. Children signed to one another during the sermons in church or behind a teacher's back in school. <laughs> Neighbors could sign to one another over distances in a field or even through a spyglass telescope. One woman remembers how her father would be able to stand on a windy cliff, sign his attentions to fishermen below. Another remembers how sick people who could not speak were able to sign to make their needs known. In other words, the, quote, disadvantage that the hearing vineyarders assumed, the effort and trouble to learn another language, turned out to be their benefit after all. There is some mystical and wonderful subjective and objective benefits and our lives are enhanced as we enter into and disadvantage ourselves for the suffering of others. Their new abilities made life easier or more productive. They changed their culture in order to include an otherwise disadvantaged minority, but in the process they made themselves and their society richer. Martha's Vineyard was a unique situation. However, in time and culture, every time and culture, the principle holds. The strong must disadvantage themselves for the weak, the majority for the minority, or the community frays and the, fa and the fabric breaks. The strong must disadvantage, disadvantage themselves for the weak, the majority for the minority, or the community frays and the fabric breaks. Pretty thoughtful, you know? And it seems like when Jesus said, when you do this, you do it to me. You actually encounter me, you join me, you experience me in ways you will never touch if you just wall yourself off and live a protected life away from the suffering needs of the world. And when you enter in, you watch that dead, dry, frustrated spiritual experience where your prayers don't go any higher than the ceiling and you feel like you don't get anything out of devotions anymore and church is boring and whatever, on and on and on. You start getting in the needs of others and then start praying for those needs. This will really change prayer life while we'll pray more and more for others instead of self. And lots of things will explode. You want to talk about this for a minute? Ask questions, make comments. Pardon? When you go ahead, you're going to be uncomfortable when you first start this process. Sure. Yeah. We're, this is not. These are not safe waters. And if you're not used to them, and you're used to self-responding, 
even if you're dying yourself from praying, it's, yeah, there's going to be discomfort. Absolutely. And I, I'm reading a book on how to be with people that grieve. To be with people that grieve, yes. And I'm learning that the number one thing you do, whether it's a loss or somebody sick, is you listen. And that is so hard to do, to just be with that person right. and do nothing. And, and you feel their pain. Right. And you shut up. Because you all usually the things we say are not very smart or helpful. <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? Uh, let me put you on the spot, and please don't. Uh, you know, I, I'd be curious today what you've heard that um, has been most helpful that, uh, that you think may shift your life even a little bit, if anything. Yeah? Go ahead. You lost. I'll start with I lost my forgiveness paper. So you if lost anybody your has a spare, paper. if I could have that back. <laughs> anybody? Anybody? But that's the one I want to start with first. Okay. Uh, I have some of my own uh, struggles that I'm dealing with as that sure. newly divorced person. Okay. And so I think that's a good one, especially if you're modeling in front of my two little All kids. Right. So that Start one with was, forgiveness. Good. Yeah. yeah. Hey, there you, there you go. You. <laughs> you got a forginess paper. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's going to look for So I was checking my purse, and I'm like, where'd that kid put it? Yeah. Uh, so that one was definitely good. the most poignant for good. me. Okay. So. Helpful. Thank you. Anybody else want to talk about? I'm not looking for attaboys at all here. I'm just curious. I'm very curious what speaks most to you of this little series? Um, for me, I my mom passed away, and then her house burnt down, and oh we've been going through like a whole big, you know, building a house, what do we do, this kind of stuff. Hold that close. And it's, and it's felt like a big mess. And for me, when you said it's okay to have a bee in a mess, yeah. it's okay, um, give it to God, and just let him be a conduit, that spoke to me. Amen. Good, good. That's uh, good. Amen. Yeah. Earlier, you used the phrase speaking truth to ourself. Yes. And what popped in my mind was speaking truth to power. That phrase, uh, speaking, speaking truth, truth to, power. to power to other people who are powerful, telling them how it really is. And I was just saying, who's more powerful in my life? than me. So speaking truth to myself was, hey, wait a second, that is speaking truth to power. Yeah. So that, that struck me. And when you speak his truth, yeah. you're exchanging his power for your weakness. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not as powerful as we think. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, good. Over here. <clears throat> Earlier this morning, you mentioned or was it another sermon? I don't remember. Something close to what he said. Um, what we said to our, what we say to ourselves, how we talk to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves. Right. That really shift That's certain right, yeah. perspective. We of, need to talk to ourselves instead of listen to ourselves. Right. And also what you said at the beginning, this afternoon and in the morning, that Brenda asked you to talk about. Um, we see it? people the way we see them? No, not no. that one. 
the dying, is, maybe the dying itself. Uh, Die to self, and, and when you see others not doing what you want. Oh yes. Well, how was what was it? I forgot. When I see the that others, you would not react to it anyway. Not reacting, right? Exactly. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. The, yeah. <laughs> Let me and raise your hand if you think of something while I'm mentioning. Let me say this. If you have been convicted by the Spirit to work on something or with one of these tools, whatever, uh, you're much more likely to really do it rather than kind of forget about it and go on like we always do. If you do two things, one is you get with a friend you can trust and tell them about it. Just tell them you've learned this uh, concept, you've learned this tool, and I very much want to uh, practice this and uh, get deeper with Jesus and, and, and do this. Uh, so tell somebody that, because those who have studied um, uh, change uh, have noted that change is much more likely to take place if we tell someone about the change we want to make. We're, we're bringing out and we're, we're speaking at somebody else's hearing. And number two, in a way that would feel comfortable and works for you, uh, you'll be much more likely to grow if you ask that person to hold you or someone. You may tell one person about this and then you might ask another person to hold you but hold you accountable to this. At, tell them, I give you permission to regularly ask me what I'm doing, and when you ask me, ask, make sure my answer is specific, not a generic, oh, yeah, I'm doing okay. Specifically, how is it going? Tell someone and ask someone to keep your feet to the fire. Now I scared everyone out of doing it. <laughs> Any, anything else you want to say about, we've really been talking about the two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Love your neighbors yourself. That can only happen if we quit trying to do it under our own steam and we let go of that and are filled with his life and his power. Let's stand and I want to lead you through a prayer, all right? Before I do this, I'll throw one more three slide on the screen. These are both from Ann Voskamp about our last topic. The only life worth living is the one you lose, dying to self. Giving away the heart heals the heart. That's, that's another thing. I wonder how much of our emotional baggage and our heart wounds and pains, either current or way past, would be healed as we give away the heart. Giving away the heart heals the heart. Let's pray. For a few moments, would you just uh, listen? Ask God to speak to you and whatever he wants about today.
listening to him calling you to his cross and all the wonder there, the tears of repentance and the joy of forgiveness and new life. If you're up to it and if it seems to fit, tell him how thankful you are for the suffering he did for you and ask him to lead you to the suffering he wants you to be next to in other people's lives. The scripture prayer one more time. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power so that his spirit, I, and here I've kind of forgotten, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, in love, may have power together with all the saints. Lord, here's this church family I pray for and the togetherness of this church family and the wonderful way in which they respect each other's cultures. Just, uh, I pray that they, together with all the saints around them, may have power to grasp how wide and long and deep is your love and the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Lord, give us this love that we can't even put words to. It's, it's beyond knowledge and yet we can experience. And through this, fill us to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now, Lord, to you who are able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine. We ask for a lot of things, Lord. And you're telling us you'll do more than we even imagine. It must have to do with love, loving others and serving others. So as we ask for from you to serve others, give us more than all we thought or imagined according to your power that is at work within us. Lord, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for hanging by today. You're brave souls.